Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. So welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. We are still in New York, uh, our New York studio. We're sitting down with sort of a yin to yang is how I sort of describe our relationship uh, with Chase Ross Emanuel, who's going to talk to us about a lot from the investment side with sort of an operator lens in a lot of ways because he's just spoken with that many people. So we're looking forward to today's conversation. But Chase, why don't we rewind the clock? Because I don't know if we've ever actually talked about this, which is kind of how you grew up a little bit more, the earliest, younger version of Chase. And why don't you just also talk about whether or not that younger version of you would be friends with with the Chase sitting in front of us today? Yeah, right on. Thanks so much for having me, man. It's always been a pleasure uh, chopping up with you. Um, I'd say that uh, I was born in New York City, um, raised in Mount Vernon, New York, in Westchester, for those who know the area. I went to Good schools growing up, Horace Mann in Bronxville. And I was recruited actually to be a swimmer in college. So I had a choice of going to Columbia, Johns Hopkins, or University of Virginia. Wound up at University of Virginia. And I tended to be a popular kid growing up. Um, I was athletic, I was a decent student, and um, tended to get along with just about anyone. And as far as like the younger me versions would be concerned, I think the 12-year-old me who wanted to be an Olympic swimmer <laughs> would look at me like I was weird. 22-year-old me who was uh, uh, wanted to be like Obama would be would be kind of surprised, pleasantly surprised where things ended up. The the, the 32-year-old me uh, who wanted to be the next Brian Chesky uh, would have said like, "Oh, this makes sense." So I think, and I think the 42-year-old me who wants to be I'm not 42 yet, but you know <laughs> that's that was the next leap. Who wants to probably be the next low Tony and just like, "All right, stay focused. You know, you can make it." That's excellent to hear. So we're talking to one of the the cool kids from back in the day, one of the jocks with a great perspective. And you told us about sort of your athletic background, swimming, your collegiate choices, but where along the way did you first start to scratch that itch of technology? So talk to us about your earliest moments touching technology, invest in innovation. Where did that come from? What's the source? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. The first experience I can remember was getting connected online for the first time, right? Like I'm, I'm 37 now. Uh, so my, my first, the first uh, interaction I really remember was connecting to AOL at home, you know, trying to get like a, a DSL connection or whatever it was back then. That was the first time I was just like, this is really cool. This is how I can stay connected to all my friends. There seemed like there was a, a party happening online and I was missing out for a while. Um, and I'd say that from the investing side, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be exposed to the investing side for a really long time. You know, my, my, my father was in, in, in real estate development and construction, and I think he had put a little money to work before the 2000.com bust, right? And then it was just like, this is crazy, right? 2008, 2009 would have been around the time I graduated from undergrad. And, you know, the markets had blown up again, right? So there wasn't really many people in my circle who had done a lot of investing, um, to kind of show me the ropes or, or show me how to do it right. Mm-hmm. And it would just, just seem like this scary, speculative kind of casino of a place that some people made money and other people lost their shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, my first my first ex, ex, like direct exposure to investing was actually as a founder, um, trying to raise money for the first time and trying to figure out like what that looks like. So whether, I mean, I'd been exposed to fundraising through some work I'd done in nonprofits early in my career. And so I knew how to pitch 
right? But the the idea of an equity investment, understanding like what comes with that and what the expectations were. Or actually, I, I had to learn about it as a founder to make sure that I could give myself the best chance of raising money. Mm-hmm. And through going through that experience, you kind of it gets you past the 101 and the, and the 102, like the entry level stuff. Like you're pretty intermediate, I guess, just in general, if you've gone through that fundraising experience as a founder in, in, in terms of it. I'd say once I got to the investing side, though, the thing I missed as an operator, because every founder I know, they, they see very acutely like the team risk, the execution risk, right? When they pitch, they make sure to like um, give reassurance to investors that, you know, they, they're the right team to execute this plan. Uh, there is still financing risk especially on the VC side that I would learn later, right? When, you know, a round might be, they're targeting $3 million, but, uh, you know, the, the, the founding team can only manage to, to raise 2 million of it, right? All of a sudden, whatever plan they had pitched you on, like it kind of goes out the, the window because they have to readjust to the new reality that, okay, how can we achieve the same milestones we were promising on two thirds of the budget, right? So then you have to start really getting creative, roll up your sleeves, be a great support uh, system for the founders and, and figure out what's reasonable and how we actually get to the goal. A lot of founders, especially the, 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 the most promising, aren't just thinking about the stage in front of them, right? They are at the same time thinking like two and five year timelines out. I think for most CEOs, that's the way they have to think about the world, right? So it's not just, I need the money to get to the next round today, but as we get to series B or series C or some of these later rounds of, of funding, right? And we go from a team of 10 to 25 to 100 to 250 like how am i who who do i have in my corner to help me think through how to scale my engineering team right how to scale my people team um how to you know think think about hiring and culture right keeping efficiency right so that we we, we keep a quality control as as we're trying to build really fast and maybe or maybe not break things right um so having people who have seen that scale and can give you good advice about what to prioritize um, a lot of founders find that extremely helpful. And because Uber was probably one of the, the largest consumer apps of a generation, right, that comes with a lot of with a lot of street cred, I'd say. Yeah. So we're asking about the right way to go about thinking about a venture studio. Like, are these uh, investors or folks who are founder operator now investors, are they joining people to close transactions and contracts? Like, are they, you know, looking at the architecture on the inside? Like, are they doing more than an advisor or, you know, a monthly call with, with likely entail? That's that's a great question. So the, I, I've come across really two kinds of studio models, right? The first is, hey, we got all the ideas. We, 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 we will come up with 300 ideas and bet that down to 30 or whatever the number is. And then we're going to build and test. And as we validate we'll bring on an operator who's good at scaling things and they'll take it from there, right? The other model I, I see, which I personally prefer, is one where it's like, hey, we actually know how to build the zero to one. We've done that a thousand times over. We just need the right founder with the right mission, the right idea, right? Our, our job is actually to recruit great founders who need people to partner with to stand up that zero to one. And I think when we talk about um, diverse founders, underrepresented founders, BIPOC founders, uh, female founders, um, I find that we might we we might over-index. Maybe over-index isn't the right word, but I see more non-technical founders with great ideas that really understand their customers and the opportunity in front of them that maybe don't have the network of like a really strong CTO or technical lead like readily available to them, right? So in that way, um, studios could provide an incredible support to people who 
know their market super well, know their customers super well, right? But struggle actually to t- kind of just to stand up the tech. So for, for any founders or potential founders out there, looking into studios makes a lot of sense. I will say that the best studios tend to have some level of specialization. So, you know, it might be around the, the markets or industries, or it might be around the business model, right? So you just want to be mindful of, you know, as you do your homework around studios, understanding like how each one set, is set up because no one studio looks exactly like the other. Wait a minute, you might have struck gold there a little bit. Is that product market fit from the standpoint of diverse founders who are not technical? Is linking up with the studio as sort of a, a founder hack? Would you recommend that? And if so, what are some good ways to go about that? If you're listening to this right now, never heard of a studio, that sounds like me. Let me get connected with them to, to save my business. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. So I would say that the best time to engage a studio is at the idea stage. Most studios want to kind of work with you to to refine the idea and make sure that it is venture scalable, right? So if you are a founder at idea stage, then that's great. I think what you want to have very clearly laid out when you go to a studio, though, is who your customers are going to be, right? I think you have to come to them with the market validation, whether that's through interviews, or maybe you're able to stand up a landing page, there's a waiting list, maybe some sort of LOIs, letters of intent, if it's more of a, a enterprise go to, uh, go to market. You definitely need to do your homework before you present, because by the time the studio gets involved, they don't want to have to think about whether or not it's going to work, right? So they're happy to, to help like support you and stand up the business, but you really have to have done the homework first prove that the, the the business case is viable. I would say if you're in a position where you've already stood up things and they're a little bit broken and, you know, it's just, you, you kind of need to start over. You need somebody to come in and save. It might be more economical to just start over because likely wind up happening is if you kind of built something that's broken, you will have to pay people to unbreak it, <laughs> to fix it. And then just, you basically have to go backwards before you can get back to zero. Right. So you're, you know, the, the amount of time that they're going to spend trying to figure out what somebody else did wrong and try and, and fix that, it might be faster and more efficient for them to just start from zero and, and spin up the idea again. Right. So that, that's kind of my perspective there. You know, you reminded me of some earlier conversations that we've had. And I'm going to be straight up with you. I've been using that in my discussions with other founders because I think you're spot on. In our community, you said to bring back the over mm-hmm. the over indexing phrase, you said that we often over index on business partnerships and, you know, those relationships without talking to our customers. So speak yeah. a little bit more about that. I know that's kind yeah. of one of the things you like proselytize it and rightfully so because talking to customers is super important. So what are you seeing and what would you recommend for founders who may not be aware that that's what they're doing? Yeah, man, that is probably one of the, for for any founder out there who's wondered like why there wasn't follow-up from investors, I would say that this is one of the number one reasons why I kind of pass on an opportunity. I want to hear, especially if you're non-technical, I want to hear what your customers have to say about the product. If you are not kind of quoting customers about the things they love about your product, the things they would like you to see you fix or bring to the product, right? Um, and you're kind of telling me about the channel partnerships you've set up and, you know, all these things that should force users to eventually use the product, but aren't you without having actually talked to your users or, or your customers, right? Then I'm not, I'm not interested because uh, what that tells me, what that signals to me is that you're afraid of your customers. Right. You might have fallen in love with your idea instead of the problem that you're trying to solve. Right. 
Um, and that generally does not lead to, to good outcomes. That is spot on and, and, and definitely something that you should incorporate into your thinking early on. These yeah. are lessons at the very start that you can employ. So you mentioned network a number of times as being quite valuable, no matter what stage where you are. But we're wondering for you, you have a, an expansive group of people all over the world. And maybe you could talk about your your recent foray into your adventures all over the world, because I think that's interesting, too. But who in your personal network has showed up in ways that were least expected and anticipated? I mean, you're around business people. You're in the heart, the Big Apple. So a lot of people come to you looking for ways to help or extract value. But who in your personal network showed up in a way that you were delighted but unexpected? Let me answer the first question first. So I was uh, in October 2020. I was in New York City. We're getting ready for our, our second COVID winter. And I just decided I'm not going to do this thing. Tw- I'm not going to do a COVID winter in New York City twice. So I and a friend of mine, Alex Batdorf, who runs an incredible traction accelerator for female founders called Get Shit Done. Um, we decided that we we're going to go rent out a hotel in, in Puerto Rico. So we sent an email out to 150 friends and basically said, like, hey, if anybody wants to ride out the apocalypse with us, we'll be in Puerto Rico sipping margaritas by the beach. Feel free to pull up. And of those 150 friends, about 40 reached back out, filled out an application. About 15 wound up, wound up coming and two thirds of the 15 extended their stays once they got down there. Right. We were able to find a, a hotel that had no bookings for November and December. You know, they're happy to have us. We instead of doing nightly rates, we did like weekly and monthly rates. It was it was probably the best way I could have spent that time. It actually kicked off a, a year and a half journey around South America and Latin America. Spent one to two months in like nine or 10 countries. Um, got to see uh, Mexico and Costa Rica and Panama and Colombia and Ecuador and Peru and Chile and Argentina and Uruguay um, before coming back to New York to, to, to start at Expa, right? And, you know, I think part of bringing those folks together, even in the midst of a crisis, right, in a, outside of our homes, right, it just speaks to me to the power of community, right, and um, building a network that you can stand on. So I've always been, I've, I, I quickly realized entering this industry that it's uh, one of the most relationship driven industries on the planet, right? So it makes sense to lead with a human connection, right? We will get the business stuff done, but it's really helpful if we kind of like the people we're around, right? And doing normal things uh, is a great way to get to know people in a personal uh, way that leads into better business relationships as well. So I found that that relation, like those kind of relationships, creating that kind of space for folks has led to some of the strongest and, 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 and stickiest connections I've had in this industry. And in terms of unexpected value, right, it was those kinds of events and relationship building that led to me becoming a, a scout at Lightspeed Venture Partners, led to uh, me joining Carta in the first place, put me in a position to back some of my friends who were emerging managers right? Um, invest in some friends who became founders, right? And uh, that's because, you know, a friend of mine who had come to some of my events uh, was the first to let me know that Lightspeed Venture Partners was um, recruiting more scouts. He had been a scout himself. He paid it forward. Uh, he let me know that the application was, was out there. Um, it wasn't very well advertised. It was a competitive process. It was another friend who I had recommended 
or, or as a referral for, for their Series A. Um, gave them like my highest level endorsement. Also happened to be a portfolio founder at Lightspeed, was willing to put in a good word for me as well. And it was a, another friend, uh, Carolina Haranka, who previously been a, a principal at uh, Kapoor Capital. I had worked closely with her brother on a couple of projects. Turned out that she was also going to be a, a Lightspeed Scout and was willing to put in a good word for me too. And um, it was just, I guess, that, that, that reciprocation that's not transactional that helped me get into a lot of spaces that I might not have otherwise. It was a, a realization for me that um, this game is not actually a meritocracy. It's a networkocracy, right? So you got to connect those nodes in your network, right? Like, and make it strong enough that you can stand on it, right? Like when I think about how much value creation my friends make with one another now, um, it's a flywheel at this point, right? For, for me to think about, you lose count of the number of times people help you. You lose count of the number of times you've helped other people. It just makes good business. And at the end of the day, you look back, it's like, wow, we got really far. Um, some folks in my network, when I met them and we started doing events together, doing brunches, right? They were just thinking about raising their first VC fund, right? T- today, they've closed collectively over $300 million in funding. And that was just through acts of fellowship, right? Building that relationship building, sharing resources, sharing knowledge, right? Making introductions. Uh, I think the most beautiful thing about building networks is when the networks actually collapse. Like my network becomes your network, your network becomes my network, right? There are probably a dozen people that are super close, that I'm super close with, who are also close to another dozen people, right? So my network went from 12 people now probably to about 150 who I can just, you know, at a text message, ask them for a favor and they're willing to respond like say less, right? So um, I think that's the beauty of building networks over time and, and something that both diverse founders and investors have to be mindful of, right? We, we, we're not going to win this game on our own. We have to win this game together. Brilliant and super insightful. And I love the way that you describe networks really as nodes where your old friends become new friends with your old friends and vice versa as you continually expand outside of your home. Now let's turn it inside the home and talk about you know, how this investment life, this VC, this founder, like, you know, project that you've been working on for the last decade or so, how that has positively impacted your personal life. Because you work a lot. I can tell that since we first met, like you were grinding, always thinking about it. And you can tell by the clarity in what you say and the intentionality around that. How has that positively impacted the way you see family or your family life or what your family goals are? So I, I you know, for, for me, like the, the biggest value add I've been able to give to my family is really thinking about um, investing as a pathway to generational wealth. I, I, you can't in this environment, if you're a millennial or younger, you can't save your way to retirement. Right. You have to really think about investing for even I have two younger brothers. Um, we've begun pulling money together so that we can buy multifamily unit homes in, in like upstate New York. Right. We're, we're looking at this as a monopoly board. We're trying to figure out like what our entry price is. Right. Like what's the ROI? Where can we actually build build uh, houses and hotels, that kind of thing. And and, and kind of start building our empire together incrementally, but intentionally. Right. Because the, the money just can't sit on the sidelines. So I'll, I'll pause there. Well, I'll restart it there because I want to talk about generational wealth because I was attending a panel uh, in Nashville 
where the moderator was a, a former Y Combinator founder. Mm-hmm. And they exited, but mostly a break even. Mm-hmm. And he said that he might have been better off joining one of the other companies in his cohort that was doing really well and he would have made out better financially. So you don't necessarily become a founder to build generational wealth. If that's your goal, there are better ways to do it. So if you are a founder, maybe you know attending an accelerator or going in and you are starting to have a little bit of doubts if you are the one to create generational wealth for hundreds of people or hundreds of thousands of people, how would you go about thinking about making that switch? Uh, because a lot of people are all into entrepreneurship, but you can have 100% of nothing. So talk about like if you have that opportunity, what are some things you could, should consider to optimize that? Yeah, I think there's a common saying, venture, or it's really a question, right? It's like, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king, right? Because oftentimes the people who are rich have to give up a certain amount of power. They have to maybe be a little bit more humble, right? And work with other folks in order to build that kind of wealth, right? If you want to be king and like no one can have full autonomy, right? No one can tell you nothing, right? You get to make every decision um, and you get to kind of live and die on your own sword. You can do that. And some people are successful doing that, but there are not as many people that, that think that way that are also rich. Right. So you have to think about which one is most important to you. Remember this idea of meritocracy versus networkocracy. Right. The more smart and brilliant people you can get under your tent, the more likely you are to be successful. I think even in the case of that, that, that Y Combinator founder you mentioned, I think it's absolutely right. Like, listen, if, if, again, it's about the equity. I think that's actually the, the brilliance of that idea. You don't have to be a founder to get equity. Uh, you don't have to be an investor to get equity right? You can be an operator and get equity, right? You can be a, a, a retail investor and get equity, right? Get it however you can, right? Make sure it's appreciating though. Like that's the goal. So if you think that you can build an appreciating asset over time, that's enduring, right? go for it. If you if you think that you're that's going to be like a, a, a big challenge, or maybe there's, there's a bigger opportunity to join another company that's kind of already figured it out, do that. Right. And if you decide afterwards, you still have the itch to do something of your own, at least you now have the cloud cover of equity in that appreciating asset that if you need to borrow against it, sell some of it in order to extend the runway for your own projects. Right. You have that. Um, I actually if I'm, if I'm keeping it 100, like I worry about the cost of education these days. I worry about the cost of entrepreneurship these days. These are both things that actually come at a deficit more often than not, right? I think about, you know, if I'd had $100,000 to, like, let's say it was five years ago uh, and somebody gave me $100,000, right? If I put that $100,000 in Amazon stock, right, it'd be worth, well, maybe not right now, but up until the, the, the recent turn of the market, it would have been worth like four or $500,000, right? And I could have taken half of that, invest in whatever I want, a home, vacation, whatever it is, pay off bills, credit cards, whatever. And then it would still continue to appreciate over time. Uh, if I had put that money into education, right, I would have, I, honestly, I would have been able to pay for maybe half of it, right? And I would still be on the clock trying to figure out how to pay it back. I think about entrepreneurship, you know, $100,000 might get the product stood up. But if I don't figure, figure things out, right, with that first $100,000 in that first year, right, the company might be dead on arrival, right? So in a lot, in a lot of ways, like, being becoming a, a smart or sophisticated investor 
is the best way to give yourself optionality to do these other things you want to pursue later, right? Yeah, I, I, I almost feel like you have to figure out the investment game before you even figure out education or entrepreneurship. That, that, that I think we actually have this, this equation backwards. So let's continue to memorialize some of these older conversations. We won't get into the particular, but you have and do survive when others don't. So what would you say is something that could help somebody listening to this right now who's in corporate America? They want to be more valuable to a company that's going to grant them equity. They want to make it to that year. What are some things they should be thinking about to make themselves recession proof, you know, termination proof, layoff proof, especially today where that is happening left and right? This advice is with the caveat that I've worked in customer facing roles, right? Um, my job actually has been to build relationships with other people. And the, the beauty of having that kind of job is that, you know, if things are not working well in one area, you've built enough of a network, right? Where they like you, they trust you, they know what kind of work you're capable of, and they're willing to vouch for you and, and, and either put opportunities in front of you or just bring you under, under, um, under their wing. So in that way, like I'm always, every relationship that every person that I meet, I'm thinking about like, oh, well, my first, my first goal is to figure out how to help them. Right. But ultimately it's like, how do I keep them close and in network and keep, just feed my network in general in the event that I have an ask or a need, right. That I might one day have to, you know, figure out where to go. It keeps my options open. Right. So building your network kind of outside of your function, I'd, I'd say is probably still very smart. So if you are. I don't know, uh, an engineer, or maybe you're in design or, or product, or, or maybe it's like operations, right? You should probably put together a little brunch or something, like a monthly, quarterly happy hour with other people who have had, who do a similar role as you do, right? Because when you start building that kind of network, you also realize opportunities to be more efficient, right? You find collaboration opportunities where you may not have looked otherwise. You have people who can now vouch for like your character and, and, and the kind of work that they that you do because they've been tracking your progress for a while. Right. And so if you do need to hop from one place to another. Right. There's somebody who can provide a safe landing. So that's the way I would think about it. That's the reason to invest in network. And for those who are maybe a little bit more introverted, I think it's just kind of the medicine you have to take. Uh, I hate to say it that way, but keep a small circle. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be a lot of people. It could be five or six, right? That aren't going to drain all of your energy or your oxygen, right? But you gotta you gotta invest in network. That's solid. And let's stick back to the numbers because it seems like you were really comfortable with, with the numbers now, and maybe weren't always so, but now definitely see the value in that. So when you write a million dollar check, what are the right ways to think about spending that money, and what are the wrong ways to think about spending that money? And I'll give a brief preface, but I don't know if this came from you or our conversations or what, but it seems like people typically are tempted to hire fewer engineers than they need. But I'm wondering if that's just my own biases. That's just an example. When you write a million dollar check, what are some of the right ways to spend it? What are some of the ways that would give you pause? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I think Another way to look at it as well is to say, like, who gets million dollar checks, right? Um, and, and, and what do investors need to see um, in order to feel comfortable, like, with, with the risk involved, right? And um, what I've seen for, for most investors is that, um, especially at the earliest stage, because a $1 million check 
is usually what you'll see uh, is maybe an anchor check in a seed round. So, you know, you might be raising two to three million dollars. Your lead investor is probably going to write a one to one and a half million dollar check. Right. And this is the, the investor that's going to work most closely with you, um, that has probably the most skin in the game, um, should be able to provide the most strategic guidance as well. Like the one as a founder, you'll probably be most willing to lead on, lean on. Right. And what I typically see kind of from a um, heuristic level is that investors, especially in this kind of market where, you know, it is um, we are in the middle of uh, hopefully the bottom of the market right now. Like a lot of company valuations have been slashed by 50 to 60 percent. Right. In the last couple of months, lots of layoffs going on right now. There's a lot of money sitting on the sideline, kind of waiting for the markets to correct themselves. They're going to look for founders who are builders, period, full stop, right? So if you are non-technical, you got to figure out a way to get somebody technical on the team, right? And um, I'll talk, I guess, a little bit about how I bootstrap my startup idea, because maybe this will be helpful and, and we can continue to talk about like what it takes to get a $1 million check. But a couple of years ago, I tried to start a company called Travely. It was a group travel planning app that used savings automation to calculate what friends and friends could take trips together, right? Because um, I actually wanted to go on some of these these damn Instagram trips with my friends, and you know, I was I was still a public servant and not making that much money, and you know, was tired of basically the like every trip plan going to pieces, right? Twelve people will be in the time first payments due, like that number's down to two. And so for me, like I spent a lot of time doing customer research, right? I spent like months um, doing surveys, doing interviews, trying to figure out what other solutions were on the market. Right. I did surveys with, I think it was over 200 people. Right. I was 25 questions. I think I still have it somewhere. Very detailed about from the planning experience, how much people were making, how much they spent, how much time they spent um, planning a trip. Right. What was the whether they were group trips or or solo trips. Right. Um, How many trips they plan to take in a year. I got very detailed information uh, to understand like where our, our entry point might be. On top of that, I went and talked to 40 people individually. I went into Facebook groups, Reddit ch- channels, all this kind of stuff, uh, talking to millennials and or travelers, right? And a lot of them were generous enough to, to give me their time. I'd, I'd set up structured interviews just to understand um, what they, uh, how they thought about travel, where they wanted to go, right? And eventually at the end, I would, I would, I would tease at what I was building and whether or not that would be interesting to them, right? And what I found it wasn't obvious at first, but after 40 interviews, what I found is the people that were most interested, people that were most excited, the people that followed up to figure out how much progress I had made, right, were um, always traveling in a group. So they, you know, be like, oh, my, my boyfriend would would love this if he had an app like this. We'd finally take a trip. Or, you know, my wife, she's been waiting for an app like this to coordinate X, Y, and Z. And so that became the, like, it's like, oh, okay, we should focus on group travel. Like the people who are doing solo travel seem like they figured it out more or less with their credit cards. So once we did that, uh, the next step was to really figure out what is a good entry point into the market. And where we settled on was bachelor and bachelorette parties, right? There was a certain forcing function around the social obligation to go, right? We knew they were relatively repeatable so we could build around that experience. There was probably only a dozen cities where like 80% of the bachelor bachelorette parties took place, right? So we could kind of manage that experience reasonably well. And on top of that, like we also tracked bachelor and bachelorette parties. So we were tracking like four or five bachelor bachelorette parties, three, three bachelorette parties, two bachelor parties. What we found in the bachelorette parties of that in, in two of the three that we, we tracked, 
the girls were no longer friends by the time uh, there were real they, they, there were real fallouts in the friend groups in the planning of these bachelor bachelorette parties. So we had done enough research to realize like, okay, there's actually a real pain point here. There's an actual use case, right? The challenge and what we found when we started building was that the, it, the customer delight point still took a little too long to get to. And I can get into that later. But once we had done an, as much validation as we could to feel confident that there was a problem here that we could solve, market opportunity for us, right? Customers had given us feedback. We knew what they were willing to buy and, and why. My next step as a non-technical founder was not to find engineers, actually to find a designer because I needed to get the idea I had in my head into a form factor that engineers could actually build. And that's the, that's the part, that's like the hack, right? If you're a non-technical founder, start with, start with a designer, go through three or four uh, uh, design sprints, right? Between every kind of uh, design that the, that the designer gives or g- gives you. Go find those same customers you're trying to, to you're trying to um, uh, sell to. Get their feedback. It's like, hey, you know, I'm just curious about your feedback about this app, whether or not you would use it. Like, I would go to clubs, I'd stop people on the street, I would go back to those online forums, get feedback, right, uh, and then come back and we do it again. And it wasn't until we got to a design level that people were just like, oh yeah, I would use that. Like that's where the the updates came. That's when I felt comfortable recruiting the engineers. Right. And the first person I looked for was somebody who had had startup experience before built from zero to one. Right. And I didn't ask them to join the team right away. I was like, hey, I was wondering if I could get your feedback on this app and, you know, the feasibility. Right. I've already done the work on the business side, validating it. Feel pretty comfortable there. Happy to tell you more. But would love from your engineering perspective, like to understand like what the zero to one looks like. And so, you know, I find during that experience that a number of engineers actually would say something along the lines of, oh, this is a really slick design. And I now know that that's engineering speak for, I might actually want to build this, like tell me more, right? And so I'd have those conversations, probably with a half dozen engineers, wind up settling on one guy, Webster Ross, who was really impressive and built two healthcare startups beforehand, brother who had had a master's in, uh, uh, in computer science from Columbia, like smart, really solid um, uh, hire there. And what I did, though, to, to make the burden less on him, because, you know, it's one thing to have the technical talent there. It's another to ha- expect them to code the whole app themselves. I went to AngelList. I um, cut and paste somebody else's intern uh, description for, for software engineers, put that out there, got like 48 applicants in the first 48 hours. Right. So after that, it was just a matter of vetting for culture fit to make sure they understand what we're building toward, understand some of the projects they built before. Webster had put together a, a coding test and it was basically like, all right, if you can get through this coding test, you have enough, you, you, you know enough basically to help us build version one of this app. Wow. Right. And so all of a sudden we had a nights and weekends team, right, where, you know, Webster was just uh, checking the code overnight, but like setting the sprints and the schedule for a team of hungry interns from like Baruch and Yeshiva University. And we have like one person from Columbia, right? Like, that were all coming in because they just want to build cool shit. It was beautiful getting that up and running. The challenge on our end was really the burn on like the the, the fintech side, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like using some of the t- platforms we need, like Plaid and some other ones, right? Like it was kind of a really costly proposition at the time. But what we'd eventually learn is that like, yeah, the, the, the challenge that we ran into is that people who were moving money into these apps were moving the money out quicker than they were buying tickets because, you know, that customer delight point needs to be 
the first three minutes, not the first like 30 days. Okay. Let's, yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up again because we were going to circle back on that. You promised to talk about it. So what is customer delight? Yeah. Customer delight is that aha moment when the customer's like, oh, there's that one feature, that one part of the experience where this is dope. Like I'm going to use this again. Right. It's the, it's, it's the customer delight point is the thing that keeps the customer coming back. And that could be, this is just the cleanest, simplest, most elegant design I've seen for this kind of app. It could be that it's a feature that actually solves like a really acute problem. Right. That might be as simple as like a scheduling feature. Right. Or, or you think about like Calendly, which many people maybe in the early days might have thought was just a feature that Google could and would easily copy. Right. It wound up being um, a real standalone product because it was solving a problem people had every day. Right. It's a, it was a it was a small problem, but it was a persistent problem that could like, you know, if you're talking about from our hours spent doing this thing, this mundane task. Right. Here we are with a solve that gets it done five times quicker. Right. So the customer delight point there was the ease of use. And this even goes back to to Garrett at uh, Expa and Uber, like his whole idea was like, I want to push a button and get a cab. Like, I don't want to make it complicated, right? I want to simplify this experience to a one button solution. And for a lot of people now with Calendly, what do they do? Somebody wants to schedule a meeting, they cut and paste the link, set it and forget it. You know what I mean? So you want to think about customer delight point in terms of the, the problem you're solving. Is it 10x better than the existing solutions? Is the user experience 10x simpler than existing solutions? Like how are you cutting down the number of steps or making it just a more intuitive experience? There it is, how to build a startup 101. I think you might've inspired the next generation of emerging managers here. I'm sure that was your goal anyway, so spot on there. If you're listening to this right now and you like what Chase has been saying, you wanna get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? And because you taught me a lot about introductions, because we've been trading those back and forth. And I like your style. It's very systematic, but also personal. And dare I say, even sort of an intimate approach, which I have taken and gotten a lot better hit rates doing that and a lot longer uh, kind of tails from doing that as well. Uh, but if someone's reaching out to you, what is a way that they can add value, get on your radar for you to really give them that time and attention after they listen to this episode? What would that look like? And what's the easiest way that somebody could get in touch with you, let's say in 24 hours? Yeah, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. So, you know, just shoot me a note on LinkedIn, make the ask. I would say that oftentimes because you know people do get busy. Like, let's get to the point. Don't be afraid of that, right? It's like, hey, I'm X, Y, and Z, right? If you're a founder, you know, my company does A, B, and C, right? Help share the track. Like, if there's traction or whatever stage you're at, make that crystal clear, right? And say, hey, you know, I know that you're probably going to want to set up some time. So let's just get to it. Don't be like, hey, glad to connect you to my network. It's kind of a path to nowhere. It's like, okay, don't waste the time. What do you want? Be, you know, say it with your chest. Right. And uh, I'm usually pretty responsive. So feel free to reach out. Uh, happy to try and uh, spend some time on a, on a night or a weekend if, if you're noodling on something deep. Appreciate that. Well, we have enjoyed this conversation. It certainly has been a unique one. And I think you peeled back some of the layers and the curtain, if you will, on what it's like from the investor side at a lot of different levels. So we appreciate that. And thank you. It's been good catching up with you. It's been too long. Also, we want to leave you with the last word. If you want to just say something to the group to just that last little parting word to keep that 
on their mind as they go throughout their day or their commute or their cleaning or their typing away? What would that be? For me, it's still equity over everything, right? For, for those of us who have not yet figured out how to get ownership and appreciating assets, I think that needs to become one of the most important focuses for all of us in 2023, right? Spend the rest of this year position, putting yourself in a position to think about that. I don't care if it's $50, $500, whatever the number is, um, start learning, start experimenting. Start putting money to work for you. Otherwise, you'll always have to work for the money. Spoken like a true New Yorker, we might add. Definitely came through through there. Very direct, very to the point, very driven. Equity over everything. Again, thank you, Chase. It's been a great conversation and look forward to seeing where you go from here. Appreciate it, AJ. Looking forward to the next shot. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever medium of choice that you have. But thank you for joining, and we'll see you next week.